This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. This is your host, Tim Link, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. We got an old friend and buddy coming back on. We got uh, the wonderful writer, Donna Andrews, coming back on. She's going to talk to us about her uh, latest book, which is called Murder Most Foul. Of course, this is part of the uh, Meg Lanslow series, mystery series. So we're going to be excited to hear what the latest rendition is and see what's going on with Meg, the lead character, and all that fun stuff. See what kind of twists and turns are happening. So everybody hang tight. Come back right after this commercial break. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Joining me now is New York Times bestselling author and murder mystery guru with all the twists and turns. We've got Donna Andrews. Donna, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, it's exciting to have you here. We've got the latest book, Murder Most Foul, which is it's F-O-W-L. I love all the, the tongue twisters and the little things you got you put together on these books. So tell us a little bit about this installment and how is it different? How are some of the characters that we may be familiar with and come to love over the years? Okay. Well, uh, this book actually was inspired by something that happened towards the end of a couple of books ago. I like to, at the end of the book, tie up all the loose ends so people don't have to wonder, well, what happened to so-and-so? Wait a minute, who really did that? One of the loose ends I tied up was that Meg's husband, Michael, who's a drama professor, gets tapped to direct a Shakespeare play. And I suddenly realized that actually would be kind of fun to do. In the end of the other book, he was going to he was going to direct Hamlet, but I decided Macbeth would be a lot more fun. So in this book, he's doing a production for Arena Stage, which is a real theater, a very distinguished theater here in the D.C. area. But he's gotten permission since he also has a very active life at the college in the small Virginia town where they live. He's gotten permission to rehearse it in Carefilly and then take it to the stage in, in Arena when it's ready. So through a mix-up, all of the actors, there's no place for them to stay except with Meg and Michael in their large house and camping in their backyard. So they've got an entire house and yard full of actors. They also have a, uh, since it's Macbeth, there's a, rev- a reenactor group that has decided to set up their idea of a medieval Scottish military camp in the woods behind the house. And they're a little strange. There's also a very intrusive documentary filmmaker who wants to, he wants to capture everything exciting that's going on. And he's also one of those people who really likes to embarrass everybody. There is not an an embarrassing or, in some cases, 
immoral or illegal thing happening that he hasn't managed to document. So when he shows his rough cut of the film to the assembled multitudes, no one's surprised when he turns up dead the next morning. So that was kind of fun to work with. And I liked Macbeth because I kind of liked the idea that Meg's cousin, who's very interested in, the, in anything new age, she's convinced there were people casting evil spells back in the woods, doing double, double toil and trouble for real. So uh, I had a lot of fun putting the elements together. And of course, the animals, Meg is very concerned because uh, her cousin is convinced that if these people are really performing some sort of bad magic, they might have designs on their chickens or their ducks. Meg and Michael have, they have a growing menagerie. Every book, I add a few more animals to the menagerie. And fortunately, they've got Rose Noir, her cousin. She's taken on caring for all the animals. So Meg doesn't have to feed 47 animals before she takes off to sleuth. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And it's funny, uh, you, know, you mentioned that because on the uh, cover, it has three feathered friends, we'll put it that way, and a cauldron there. And of course, the uh, skeleton head with the, you know, the crown for the Macbeth. Tang. But I noticed on the cover that I, I just I thought, oh, there's three geese on there. But no, one of those is a turkey, isn't it? <laughs> a turkey or a chicken. I'm not chicken. entirely sure. Maybe it's a little of all three. I'm not sure. But I just took an early. I did, that struck me because I love the cover. And I, I, that struck me as funny, too. Oh, yeah. And the thing about Meg, the, <laughs> does it, I, the question I started thinking about is I love how you put together. It's not just like, OK, eight people are coming over to visit. And then someone ends up dead. So it's got to be one of the seven and Meg solves the problem. No, you've got like three large groups of people, sort of things going on. Yeah. It could be any, any of that at any time. So the, the breadth and the broadness of who it could be has to be narrowed down to sort of which groups are we talking about? And then who within that group could be the, the culprit? Yeah. One of the things I do when I'm plotting is I, I think of a setting, in this case, the play production. And I figure, who's going to be around there and who's going to have a conflict with whom? You, if you, you need conflict in a mystery, you also need conflict for humor. So I keep putting in interesting elements until I've got enough pieces that I can shake them up and, and cause a lot of humor and at least one homicide. So it's kind of fun. I also stick in things that I either know something about or, you know, they say, write what you know, or stuff I could have fun researching. Uh, that's equally good. So, yeah, I was a backstage drama major in college. So it's kind of like wish fulfillment when having Michael be a drama professor and an actor and a director. That's kind of like, you know, I was never much good on stage. <laughs> you know, I can have a, a stage career through Michael. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I, li I like that. I like that. So when you say you try to find things that will be fun in research, because we know every great writer out there. They'll have a, uh, a plot and a timeline. Maybe it's a, a recurring characters or a theme, but there's always something they come up with that requires research. Because if you don't do your research, somebody's going to trip you up on it. Oh, yeah. So how do you decide what is fun to research? Because those, those two terminologies don't only, in my mindset, <laughs> don't, don't align. Fun and research uh, has a big cross out with a, you know equal sign. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, I, I'm actually a big fan of putting out to, to the immediate world what I'm working on and letting the universe do a lot of my research for me. I mean, if, I, I remember at one point where I, I got, I was in a bookstore and I saw a book that was called Otherwise Normal People. And it was a book about people who grow roses and show them in rose shows. And I thought that would be a fun thing for my characters to do. And I started talking about that to my friends. And before you know it, I discovered all kinds of stuff about roses. 
And a friend, I went to lunch with some friends, and one of them turned out to be a former goat herd. And she told me that goats like three things to eat above all else, paper and poison ivy and roses. Roses. And so suddenly goats and roses began, you know, er everywhere I looked, you know, they say, if you think about a color, like color red, suddenly you look around and everywhere you'll see red. Absolutely. A lot of my research is like mentioning that I'm working on something. And then all my friends start sending me links. At one point when I was working on, uh, I was working on, I think it was the Hand of the Baskervilles, which had a, it was a livestock show and they had heritage and breeds of chickens and ducks and things. My editor sent me a book that my publisher put on. It was called Beautiful Chickens. And it was a book full of studio portraits of different breeds of chickens. <laughs> like, he just thought I'd like it. And yeah, I can use this too. Absolutely. That's yeah, fascinating. If you, you just look around for something that's fun. I mean, I decided to have, uh, I have paintball in one book. So I went paintballing and, and life did my research for me. There you go. Yeah. Oh. I like that. I like that. I like the fact that you let life do your research for you. And I love the fact that you're, you're a lot like me. You put it out to the universe. You put it out to the universe of what you want to come back and, and let it go. And it will come back to you. Yeah. I also remember when my dad, my, Meg's dad is loosely based on my dad. I changed all the externals, but the core, whenever dad does, Meg's dad and mine, they do, they throw themselves into 110%. And when he first found I'd, I'd based a character on him, dad was a little bit put, he was a little bit taken aback. But then it got good to him. And I remember one time dad said, oh, I did something the other day you're going to want to use when, when I tell you about it. So it's like, <laughs> yes, okay, you're living my, the adventures that I can then write up about this Meg's dad. Isn't that wonderful? Because you, you often, when you write about, you know, you, you, you want to throw in what you know, like you said, and the right characters in there that are as loosely, we put the little quotations in the ear, based on our parents or our friends or our family and stuff. And you got, that's, a, that's an area you have to tread lightly on often. <laughs> yeah. I mean, dad was a marine biologist. Meg's dad is a doctor. Dad was passionate about opera and French culture, whereas Meg's father is, is passionate about murder mysteries. They're both avid gardeners, but everyone who knew him recognized him immediately. So it was kind of fun. And, you know, dad's been gone for a while, but he lives on as Meg's dad in a way. <laughs> there you go. Well, the thing I, I love, it, you know, I mentioned uh, there's always these you know, groups of characters and cat, not only cast characters, but groups of characters together. But one thing that always comes to mind when I read your books, and <laughs> as I get to know Meg through the years, it's like, does this Meg see this coming? You know, <laughs> it's, it's like, okay, there's all of a sudden there's a group of people, not only one, but two or three groups of people. And then there's a murder. Doesn't she see that ahead of time and, and like tell people not to come to her house or <laughs> come to her town? <laughs> well, you know, that's the one thing I ask the readers to, you know, the willing suspension of disbelief. That's the one thing I ask readers to not, not doubt me on. It's like, yes, Meg probably sees it coming, but the book wouldn't happen if she got wary of that <laughs> told them to go away. So, yeah. Yes. We call it in the mystery world, we call it the Cabot Cove syndrome. Like, would you accept an invitation from Jessica Fletcher? No, of course not. But, um, <laughs> but you're going uh, to anyway. Yes. Yes. The logical side is you're, you're putting together this great mystery book, you know, and, and so we know Meg is going to uh, love solving these, these murders and, and oh, being yeah. part of all that. Um, but my logical or my uh, subconscious side as I, Pour myself into being one of Meg's friends, we'll say. Uh, it's like, oh, Meg, didn't you see this coming again? <laughs> How many bad guys can you have around you? <laughs> but the other thing is that I try not to kill off nice people. 
Usually, I mean, I sometimes kill off really nasty people. At worst, they're at least very, very annoying. So if you're a nice person and kind and, and polite to the people around you, you're probably going to survive being in one of my books. I can only think of one nice person I killed off, and it was a case of mistaken identity. And I actually had auctioned off a character name. It's something we often do at mystery conventions. You auction off the right to name a character after yourself or someone you know. And the person who won the character name in that auction said, I would kind of like to be a, a victim. You know, you could make me a victim. Like, I can't make her the nasty person I'm going to kill off in this book. Oh, but I could have a mistake, case of mistaken identity. So, but usually I kill off, I, I'm not saying I kill off people the world would do better without because, you know, there's nothing, you can't just kill off people who are in your way or people who are annoying. And it's not even really nice to kill evil people, but it's kind of satisfying, isn't it? When a mystery writer gets rid of someone that's like, really, oh, I really hate it when people do that. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, there's two things and I think that you learn in writing is, uh, A, don't kill off anybody the fans like. No. And secondly, don't kill off any uh, animals. You know, <laughs> animals and children were no. never hurt in this uh, writing of this novel or this book. <laughs> and our motto in the mystery world is if someone does you dirty, don't get even, just kill them early in your next book. There you go. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. Yeah. And so we're mild mannered as a result. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll come back and chat with our good friend Donna Andrews a little bit more about her latest book, Murder Most Foul, and also her writing styles and how she creates this craft so everybody hang tight we'll come back in just a moment you're listening to animal rights on pet life radio Hi, this is Tim Link, animal communicator and pet expert and host of Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have you ever wanted to know what your pet is really thinking? Do you want to find out if they truly understand what you're trying to tell them? Ever wish you could build a better understanding and closer relationship with your pet? Well, now you can. Learning to communicate with animals is a four-part on-demand workshop. In the workshop, you'll learn the essential techniques that are necessary to communicate with animals, including what is animal communication, breathing correctly to achieve the perfect state to communicate with your animals at a deeper level, using guided meditation exercises and method to communicate with animals, and how to send and receive information from your animals. So if you're wanting to learn how to communicate and connect with your animals at a deeper level, visit PetLifeRadio.com forward slash workshop and purchase and download Learning to Communicate with Animals. You'll be glad you did. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Continue our uh, chat with our good friend and New York Times bestselling author, Donna Andrews. Now, Donna, I know that this book, now correct me if I'm wrong, I, I saw this and it's just amazing and I applaud you and everything. This is the 29th in the series of the, the Meg uh, Langslow series? It is, yes. And with number 30 scheduled to come out in October. I've been busy. <laughs> yes, you have. Yes, you have. Well, congratulations and kudos. And, and uh, always great to see the books when they come out to see what uh, Meg's getting into. I may have asked you this in the past, but it always fascinates me when you're putting out, you know, uh, at least a couple of books a year and it's part of a series and you're going back to number 29 with 30 coming up here shortly. How do you keep it sorted? How do you keep it sorted in your mind? Are you so involved with Meg? And you know it by like the back of your hand, or is this part of that uh, fun research we had to go back and say, now, did that character appear in uh, book number three or book number 23? 
There, there's a reason that I, I keep copies of the Word versions of all of the books in a folder on my computer. So I can like, oh, what was his name? And I can look it up. I'm actually thinking of working with someone who does what they call a series Bible for writers. They go through and make a list. And one of the things I love my copy editor, when they do the copy edit, they make a list of the characters and a list of unusual terms. And I save those because, you know, when I'm trying to figure out in what book did I mention something, it's really nice to have those things around. But I do make mistakes. I remember in one book, I mentioned, Meg said something about her brother who had graduated from law school, about how he never bothered to take the bar exam. And I completely forgot, but my readers didn't that in an earlier book, I had actually mentioned that he passed the bar exam on the first try. Ooh, I, you know, <laughs> but I actually, so I mean, here I had an error in my own, my own world, but I actually managed to make it right in the subsequent book where Rob, the brother comes up with something that, you know, something that shows he wasn't actually sleeping in law school. And Meg looks and says, like, hey, you know, you did learn something in law school. And he says, yeah, maybe that'll keep from telling people I, that I flunked the bar exam. And I, Meg says, I never said you, I thought you flunked it. You know, I told you I passed, but I thought you just told us that to get us off your back because you knew you didn't want to practice law. And why would you take the bar exam if you didn't want to practice? That's what I do. Just say, yeah, I passed it. Go away. And Rob thinks about it for a second. He says, you know, when you say that, it's almost like a compliment. <laughs> so I, I, Meg did go through a phase where she became convinced that he hadn't actually taken the bar exam because his career now is inventing. He's the, the crazy inventor of highly successful computer games. And uh, he doesn't need the, the law degree for that. That's right. So in this case, you, you can't blame the writer. It was actually the main character who made the flub. Well, you got to blame the writer, but the main <laughs> character, you know, I figured out a way to make it good. There you go. Yeah. And it's very frustrating because, you know, people always point out there was a typo in your book. Yeah. It's when you've read it and edited it and polished it, you see what you wrote, not what you typed, if that makes sense. Yes. When I typed the wrong word, I know what I intended to type. And there is no book published these days that's perfect. If you, if you can't find a typo, you're obviously not looking too hard. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of a good friend of mine. I think he lives off of my writing, but it's not because of my writing. It's to find whatever typo or. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. And you're right. You know, you can have a, a staff of editors and you can look at that thing about a thousand times and there's still something that's going to be awry. But you're right. You have to. The gremlins will stick an error in if there wasn't one to begin with. Yes. That's right. That's right. If all he thinks about is my uh, errors in my book, then I'm not sure what, <laughs> what kind of friend he is to begin with. <laughs> Maybe I should give you his name. You can kill him off in your next book. <laughs> you know, one thing I advise beginning writers is that somewhere in your circle of friends is the person to whom you give that moving thing you wrote about, you know, but your, you know, the, the relative you lost or your, 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 the pet you loved as a child, and they hand it back to you and with all the typos marked in it. This is a person you want to befriend. Just hand the manuscript to them and let them find the typos. They'll love it. That's right. Because I don't, I don't know of any writer out there that loves the editing process. Yes. <laughs> they appreciate it a great deal, but love it now. Well, I appreciate it. And I actually don't mind the revision process because with very few exceptions, I always think, okay, I should have done that to begin with. Oh, this is so much better. I mean, it does make it stronger. Right. So, yeah. But the challenge is that you're, I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong on this, you're trying to finish up one manuscript, you know, you're, you're tidying it up, you're making some change, whatever. You've started on the other one, or at least you've got it, you know, framework and, and storyboard or whatever. 
Yeah. And one of the things at the moment I'm talking about Murder Most Foul, I'm getting revving up to talk about The 12 J's of Christmas, which is the Christmas book this year. I'm working on a book that is now officially titled Round Up the Usual Peacocks. And I'm trying to think of a title for next year's Christmas book. You're zooming back and forth on your character's timeline. And sometimes you have to, you start explaining something to them. Well, wait a minute. No, I can't tell you that yet because you don't know that yet. That happens in the next book. Forget I said that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But the luxury of that, huh? The greatness of that, to be able to have uh, that uh, going and the fans loving it for oh, sure. Yeah. Well, what do you hope uh, when people take a look and obviously purchase a copy of uh, Murder Most Foul, uh, what do you hope they gain from it? What do you hope the walk away is after they've read through it? I want people to have fun reading the books. And also one of the things people have told me, particularly over the last year, is how much they love getting away from real life when real life isn't fun and going to my fictional town of Carefilly. It's probably not 100% realistic. It's a nice place. The, the residents of Carefilly are basically mostly nice people who are nice to each other. It's for me writing. I have writer friends who had difficulty writing over the last year or so. I could retreat to my fictional world and it wasn't that hard. So I hope they enjoy visiting Carefilly. One of my friends says, I want you to find this town so I can move there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I made it up. Yes. <laughs> Just don't get involved with one of the, uh, the reenactment groups or uh, those folks. Stay away from the film guys. You'll be yeah. all right. <laughs> We're kicking those people out of town. There you go. Then it'll be a nice, lovely place. There's oh, always yeah. that one guy next door. He seems so nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, but one of the things is that it's, it's, I like the fact that Meg can call upon the community to help her. I mean, there's always someone who's got a bit of advice, a bit of information, willing to lend a helping hand. I mean, the whole purpose of last year's Christmas book, The Gift of the Magpie, it was based on something I read about a, a church that was so small it was about to die out. And the new minister came and looked out around the dozen people sitting in this big church and said, we either got to grow or close the doors. And he started this project where they put out flyers and they're like, we want to help you with something. You don't have to be a member of our church. You just have to be a neighbor. They started helping neighbors, whether they were, I think it was a Lutheran church, whether they were Lutherans or not. And they're not a big church again, but they're a lot bigger than they were. And what's more, they have a whole network of people in the community that participate in their projects, have benefited from their projects and are, are interested in giving back. And I read this wonderful, heartwarming article and I said, I want to, that's the sort of thing that would happen in Carefilly. So I decided to make a book about that, except I had to put a murder in because it's a mystery. <laughs> it's a, such a lovely place. Oh, we're going to kill somebody. <laughs> but, you know, it's, we're improving the town every time we get rid of one of those nasty people. It's there you go. Got to yeah. like it. Got to like it. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody go out and pick up a copy of the book. It's uh, Donna Andrews' latest. Uh, it's called Murder Most Foul, part of the Meg Lanslow mystery series. You're going to enjoy it as always. Donna, where can people find out more about you and what's going on, where you'll be, where your chats are, your Zooms, whatever we do nowadays? My website is DonnaAndrews.com. There's probably not much on it at the moment because I just started immersing myself in working on Roundup the Usual Peacocks. But when I'm doing something, I will try to post it there. And if they want to contact me and say how much they loved or hated the books, there's an email there that they can send me something. So, All yeah. right. Sounds good. Well, everybody check that out. Keep track of what's going on with Donna Andrews. Donna, thanks for coming back on the show. We really appreciate it. Congratulations again. The 29th mystery in the Meg Lanslow series. So good job. Keep up the great work. And we'll chat with you again somewhere down the road. Great. Thank you.
Take care. Well, we're coming to the end of the show today. I want to thank uh, everyone for listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. I want to thank the uh, producers and sponsors for making this show possible. And while you're at it, check out PetLifeRadio.com. Check out all the other hosts and shows. It's a cornucopia of great entertainment. Uh, if you have any uh, questions, ideas, comments for this show, uh, drop me a line. You can drop me a line at uh, PetLifeRadio.com. I'll be glad to answer your questions, entertain your comments, and bring on the people you want to hear from most. So till next time, write a great story about the animals in your life. Put it in a book, a blog, an article. Just get it out there. And who knows, you may be the next guest on Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have a great day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.